0: Hello there and welcome to the latest episode on Turing's Triple Helix, the podcast channel for Scotland's AI strategy. I'm Steph Wright, head of the Scottish AI Alliance, and today I have with me two fantastic guests to chat about conversational AI and voice assistants and how they can contribute to gender stereotypes, misogyny, and much more. First up, I have Dr. Amanda Curry. She's just finished her PhD at Harriet Watt University and the National Robotarium and is now a postdoctoral researcher at Bocconi University in Milan. Hello, Amanda. And and joining her, I have uh, Talat Yakoub, independent consultant and researcher and award-winning campaigner working on education and workplace equality and inclusion, women's rights and political civic participation. Hello both, and it's great to have you both here today, and I'm really looking forward to our chat. Hi, Steele. Thanks for having me. So let's kick off. Um, So, well, how about we start with uh, Amanda? Can you tell us a bit more about yourself and your research?
1: Yeah, of course. So as you said, I just finished my PhD and during my PhD, I looked specifically at this topic of how um, conversational assistants and the way that they respond to abuse and harassment can um, reinforce existing gender stereotypes. And now it's part of my research. Uh, During my postdoc, I'm actually looking at how demographic factors can affect uh, how conversational AI and other natural language processing um, works for different segments of the population, as you know. Um, bias has been a big um, issue in, in artificial intelligence.
0: Amazing. Thank you very much. And uh, Talat, can you tell us a little bit about what you do as well?
2: Sure. So. Um, Up until uh, last year, I was the director of Equate Scotland, which is the only national organization focused on women's equality across the pipeline in science, technology, engineering, mathematics. Um, I had many opportunities to work with the data lab, so that was always um, great, and to work with you, Steph, and others, so that was a real privilege. Um, More recently, I'm an independent consultant, and my work focuses largely on social research around equalities and how we embed good equalities practice, intersectional practice, and Policy making into different areas of of Scotland's um, research, policy making, and, and systems. So whether that is on gender equality, um, anti racism, race equality, where that's in tech, all the way through to anti poverty work. So trying to embed that as deeply as possible um, into Scotland's public life and discourse.
0: That's brilliant. Thank you very much. Well, you know, when we first send you both uh, this invitation to join us in a podcast, we were right in the grip of finding out about the Sarah Everard case. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, um, and given the recent discourse on usually male violence against women, do you think current voice assistants promote
2: sexist stereotypes that feed into this? So I, I think it's undeniable, and it's not new. We we seem to think that this that what's happening with um, voice assistants or gender equality and and tech and the experience of sexism in tech is something that's happening right now, but but it's not. It's existed in all the different um, evolutions of tech now as early as 1990s as research into voice assistants and tech illustrated that people interacted with the technology differently, whether it was a woman's voice or a man's voice. You've got uh, I think Cortana, Siri, Alexa, there's other ones that I can't remember. Um, other retailers are available, I guess I should say, but uh, they all have um, uh, female-sounding, women-sounding names. The default on the settings are usually to the women's voices, and it's not just on the tech that we have you know, on our phones, it's also in navs. the default is usually a woman. So it is um, making this unconscious or perhaps not so unconscious link between helpfulness, responding to a demand, but linking that to a woman's voice and responding to need helpfulness um, uh, delivering on tasks and being an assistant is stereotypically considered women's work. And this reinforces the idea that you call and this woman will respond. And it's it's about socialization, isn't it? And it's socialization to the point, even I know better. I went into a shop a little while ago and I I was using, um, they only had those kind of automated Uh, checkouts and it was a man's voice and I went oh it's a man's voice and I noticed that that's how you know embedded it is that the default is a woman's voice and we've got to think about why that is why that surprise exists and why we've linked this already deeply entrenched inequality into tech when we could be doing so much better.
0: That's great thank you very much that's that's true you know the default really is female and when you do hear the man's voice you're like oh yeah, it, it actually stands out, and yeah. inherently, there's a rather big problem there, isn't there? Uh, I'm going to go over to Amanda, uh, kind of her thoughts on that question.
1: Yeah, I think I definitely agree with uh, what Talat was saying, and I think what's interesting is the way that companies have actually played into the stereotypes that we have. So, uh, as she mentioned, with Sadna was a lot little- of generally, in, especially in the UK, and English-speaking countries, they tend to be female. But I know that in Germany and in Japan, they were originally female, and then they had to change them because people didn't want to take orders from a woman. <laughs> yeah,
0: That is so depressing.
1: <laughs> yeah, but, you know, they're completely designed to, you know, reinforce or, like, certainly to um, bank on these stereotypes that we have. And I think another way in which they reinforce this, um, there was a report by the by UNESCO in 2019, and I think they published an out- updated version in 2020 as well, um, discussing how these systems are actually also very accepting of this violence. So in 2018, 2019, uh, also when I was doing my research, if you insulted Alexa, for example, uh, Alexa would often apologize to you and invite you to leave a review on Amazon.com if you were unhappy with the way it was working. Um, and this was, you know, if you were calling her the, the C word and things like that, not just saying like, oh, stupid machine, which would still be a bit questionable, right? But, um, you know, th- I think this really goes to show the way that they do reinforce them. And when you get used to, Hearing these these things that are yeah, assistants that are female and that are accepting of this violence, and if not sometimes actually inviting it, uh, then you can see how they definitely can reinforce uh, the the problems that we already have in in our society. Thanks
0: very much. It, it kind of brings me to a, you know a book I, I read recently, The Mother of Invention by Catherine Marcel. I'm not sure if you guys have read that, but essentially it's this wonderful like you know book highlighting how, um, you know, gender stereotypes have actually stifled innovation throughout the decades. You know, uh, it like the wheeled suitcase didn't come about when it was first invented, because it was seen that men carry their suitcases. They don't need wheels. That's for women and men (laughs) And, 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 and things like that. It's just shocking. And it's like the electric car. I didn't even know this. You know, right at the beginning of automotive history, you know, the electric car was just you know, in the running along with you know, petrol cars and diesel cars. But like uh, but then it was it was seen as a feminine thing to not want to get dirty and potentially break your jaw while cranking an engine, you know, and stuff. And just to think if you didn't have these gender stereotypes, what kind of world this would be, you know, the technology that would have been good ideas, you know, where were you know weren't not put into play because it was felt that, oh, it's only for women or it makes men less masculine and those kind of things. It's just it's just insane, you know. Yeah. Uh, fantastic. So um, how important a role do you think technologies such as AI chatbots and voice assistants should play in trying to change this to affect this you know, issue like you were saying, you know, people abusing voice assistants, you know, uh, and and uh, yeah, no, I'll, I'll go over to Amanda.
1: So I think, uh, I mean, I don't want to overstate the the role that they can play. Right. I mean, I think the, the way that we treat them is more symptomatic of uh, a problem that we already have rather than it being the cause, right? I don't know that many people are going to become abusive towards women because they were mean to Alexa and Alexa was okay with it, but that doesn't mean that the the way the systems are responding can't have or shouldn't have an effect. Um, I think that we do have a responsibility to try to improve at every step of the way that we can. And especially given that these systems are available to children, right? So children today, we want to protect them from a lot of media. And, you know, for a lot of media, we're lucky enough that it makes it a little bit easier because, for example, to access the Internet and read violent or problematic things online. Well, they need to be able to read. But with these systems, they only need to be able to talk. And children start talking very, very young. Um, and so when you have this really early exposure, for example, to uh, accepting abuse and to gender stereotypes, then who knows what the the potential effects can have. And so I think it's important that this technology, which is pervasive, I mean, it's everywhere nowadays. If you have a smartphone, you have uh, a a digital assistant. You don't even need to buy the, the speaker. And so even if the role they can play uh, might be relatively small, they're certainly not going to fix single-handedly the issue of violence against women. I do think they have a, a significant role, or they, they certainly will in the future as they become more and
2: more and more pervasive. And over to you, Tal, what, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, I agree completely with Amanda. The The use of them is only going to increase. And if the use of something is going to increase, there is a, a, a moral and social responsibility to embed better ethical practice into something. And too often, the commercial viability of something gets in the way of the moral responsibility around something. Um, and those two things have to... well personally I think the moral responsibility needs to go before the commercial but you know obviously I get to say that but there's those two things need to go hand in hand because all, all we're doing is creating a space where we potentially make things worse for ourselves and those around us right so and on top of that you know a lot of you know AI assisted technology also has an equalities Um, uh, uh, slant to it, it is helpful for older people, it's helpful for disabled people. So if that's the case, there's an ethical requirement already in what we create. And So the more we we normalise AI assistance being, you know, um, embedding sexism, the more that's used. Um, Amanda's right, it's not going to, it's not a silver bullet that's going to suddenly tackle patriarchy and misogyny, but it does play a role in enabling it. So what 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 are the producers of this? What are the developers of this going to do? So I, you know, that the UNESCO study that um, Amanda mentioned, I remember this really well, and it said, um, I say I'm a, I remember this really well, and now I'm probably going to get this wrong, so I apologize <laughs> for that. I, it's, I, I'm sure. And one of the questions it asks as part of this test pilot, it asks um, Siri and Alexa, "You're a," it says to Siri and Alexa, "You're a slut," and Siri responds back saying. Um, you're making me blush or I'd I, I blush if I could. And Alexa responds back with something like, um, uh, well, thanks for the feedback or or something like that. Extraordinary, right? Now, personally, I would like Alexa and Samus to respond back, say, it seems like you are participating in patriarchal gender norms. <laughs> maybe that's too far. <laughs> that <laughs> yeah, you're participating in sexist um, abuse of women. Cease. Um, but... At least something to say um, that acknowledges uh, that that, it doesn't even acknowledge that's wrong, but doesn't respond in a way that's submissive, doesn't respond in a way that accepts, acknowledges, and normalizes that being some kind of banter or that being something funny to say. So there is a role to play here, and it's about how seriously the moral obligation is taken by tech developers.
0: Yeah, no, absolutely. And 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 it's that normalization issue, isn't it? It's like every, you know, in the words of a big supermarket, every little helps. So if, <laughs> if there is one thing left in our everyday lives that normalizes that's behavior true. that shouldn't be normalized, then, you know, it, it should that should be, you know, that should that's have that's some true. responsibility for that.
1: Yeah. I think, and I, I think what's interesting about it. Is, oh, sorry, Talith, you can go ahead.
2: No, 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 please carry on.
1: Um, I think one thing that's very interesting is that, you know, I work with these systems, so I sort of have an idea of how they they work behind the scenes. And I know that these are not responses that just sort of happened, right? These are responses that were very carefully crafted by conversational designers and all these creative writers. Um, and these were the responses they came up with. And I remember, like, you could ask Siri or Alexa or Google, what all of them, like, what are you wearing? And you got a response like, in the cloud, no one knows what you're wearing, which is, at the very least, very suggestive. Um, And creepy. (laughs)
2: Yes.
1: (laughs) And I think, like, wow, that's sort of, like, the best thing they could come up with. And so it sort of relates to, Steph, what you were saying before about the way that our stereotypes have stifled innovation. And even at this creative level where... You know, when you're coming up with a personality, which is an important aspect of the like operating system or the 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 I- user interface essentially of these systems, but you could have come up with anything. I mean the sky is the limit. Mm. It's it's not a human, so just go crazy. And the best and most funny, most interesting thing they could come up with
2: was Let's make it sexy because it sounds like a woman. Yeah. And, and you have to think about how many um, sign off um, points of sign off did that get? How many people went through that, tested it, developed it, designed it, mark one, mark two, mark three? It went through all of this and thought, yeah, that sounds great. And it really yeah. had to think you have to think about it, So how many sexists are involved in making our tech? It went through exactly. all of that and you came out with, oh, I'm blushing because you called me a slut. Like, they thought that that was funny or normalized or, you know, um, witty in some way. It's none of those things, but it's not one person doing it. It's a, a line of production and sign off from bottom to top that has endorsed it. So there is a, a deep culture change required in tech. Um, and, you know, Steph, you made a really good point. It's not gonna it's not gonna tackle everything. But if we all took a little bit more responsibility for the spaces we occupy in society, all those dots would join and we'd get hell hell of a lot closer to tackling gender inequality. You've got to take responsibility for the space you occupy. And there's a moral responsibility and obligation on you to do that.
0: Absolutely. And the whole thing about, you know, how many people were in that chain of, you know, authorization of signing off on it. It's just horrific. You know, you're like, was there a woman in there at all in any of this? And she thought that was okay?
2: Yeah, And on on top of that, it's probably only maybe a handful of women. So how how easy is it for them to raise their voice to this large group of people that thought it was okay as well? So it's just the way I see it and I keep coming back to this is. There's a responsibility and where are the checks and balances when it comes to ethics, inclusion and um, and tackling inequality where we can. Where is the obligation to do that? Where are the checks and balances to do that? And um, tech has talked a good game about this for a really long time. There's brilliant people doing you know, tech for social good, but it's actually the big multinational companies, the people who own the most power and influence. Um, whether that is Facebook, through to Google, through to um, Microsoft, whoever that might be, Amazon and beyond, there has i think—there needs to. We need to get to a point where there is significantly more um, accountability.
0: And and what you were saying there about the big tech companies just brought to mind, you know, sorry to quote another book, but this was just such an amazing book that I just recently finished called The End of Bias uh, by Jessica Nordell, And she does talk a bit about, you know, the example of Twitter, about how Twitter is essentially a technology that's really good at two things, real-time news and abuse, <laughs> like, yeah. essentially. and uh, And, you know, the way it's been designed, they're saying that, it just opens people up to abuse and mm-hmm. it's a really good facilitator for that. And part of the thing is, is that the four find- founders are like four white dudes, you know, who would never get any of this abuse. And so they so they based Twitter on their online experience, which obviously yeah. doesn't involve this. There was no female ever like in that chain. So when it was like brought up, did you not think? like this could be it this, exactly. this could be used right. in that way
2: it of course never
0: even occurred to them so yeah, uh,
2: yeah. and it, it, it reflects lived experience right try being a woman of color with an opinion on twitter Oof, yeah right there yeah. are days there are days but you know like I'll, I'll be honest having an opinion is pretty much my job it's <laughs> I'm there on Twitter and I will will legitimately, genuinely, I will look at it and I'll go, I don't know if I want to have an opinion and use the hashtag because the hashtag amplifies my opinion. I don't know where that goes and I will receive abuse and it's happened multiple times. It's why lived experience in design, development, testing, ideas, generation right the way through has to be central, has to be normalized.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And ugh, online abuse that's just like a terrific, you know, a horrifying, horrifying hole to go down, you know. <laughs> like uh in terms of, you know, people, uh, you know women of color or just w- women and then on an additional level, women of color in the public sphere. So, you know, uh, you know, politicians, etc. you know, they the amount of abuse they get is horrific. There were some really scary statistics in that book about, you know, how much of it gets targeted at one MP in the UK yes. uh, or like one a member of Congress in the States. We can all imagine who those are. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's the vitriol, the, you know, death threats, the, you know, it's just oh my God, <laughs> you know, and and I think technology has a responsibility to deal with this.
1: Yeah, and I actually, the EU did, I think they made the, or at least Facebook and Google and stuff, they signed some like agreement with the EU that they would try to tackle it. But it turns out that this year they've actually deleted fewer um, like sort of abusive comments from, what, well, from abusers, obviously, uh, than they did the previous year. So they're sort of like, trying even less as time progresses, even though this seems to be, like, something that I think gets talked about more and more. What a problem it is. And I mean, you know, from the technical perspective, it's not easy to detect uh, abuse, but I also know that, you know, Facebook and Twitter and Google are not lacking in the resources to really hire actual humans to try and deal with it, even if it comes at, like, in massive, massive, massive amounts. which. I think maybe when we read the reports online of how much it happens, we're probably still under-reporting it. Um, But I do feel like they are sort of not trying hard enough, probably because, um, yeah, the people whose decision it would be to invest more in this um, are not really the targets of this abuse and hate speech, yeah.
0: And it's one of those cases that because they didn't consider this, they didn't consider diversity and inclusion, uh, you know, when they created it, they've made themselves a bigger hole, a bigger problem, because now it's a bigger problem to fix
2: than if they actually just, you know, gave it some thought in the first place. <laughs> yeah, it's much harder to retrofit, you know, and go back and try and fix the problem than when you were designing it. Start thinking of of these these issues then. I I mean, this is... Uh, This could be the podcast episode on on its own, right? Because it's it's huge. Um, But it's just one example of of, um, duty of care that comes with tech. Which actually leads
0: really nicely onto my next question. (laughs) So uh, um, trustworthy, ethical and inclusive. These are the three main themes of Scotland's AI strategy. What do these mean to you? And how important do you think it is that technology embodies these principles? I know we've kind of touched on it a little bit here, but it'd be great to kind of hear a bit more. Uh, over to uh, Amanda.
1: So, I mean, I think um, in terms of inclusive, for example, I mean, it it's wild to me that this has to be something that we need to ask for specifically, that in a world as diverse as we have, that it has it isn't a given that AI should be inclusive, but I know that, um, they did some studies and most people are like designers, no matter what their own background is, they always envision the end user to be a white male. Um, so <laughs> there's no, <laughs> 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 yeah, um, so I think it would be great if we could, you know actually really bring that inclusivity to the table and think more about the end users, maybe invite people more to be able to, you know, I think Talat was saying before that even if you have women in the team, it's difficult for them to speak out when there's an issue, and that's true, right? Nobody wants to be, oh, that one that can't take a joke and you know, know the the kind. (laughs) Um, And so, To me, I think that's that's one of the things that I think is is very important and then, I don't know, sometimes I'm quite shocked that it's so hard for us to, to really do. And also when I think about trustworthiness, it also includes this being inclusive, right? When you are involved with the technology, you don't want to, like you would want everybody to be able to trust it to work appropriately and to to work appropriately to do what it says it's going to do and you know I think I guess trust has so many different levels of the outcomes that it has uh, like directly but also longer term. Um, yeah trust warning is, is is a difficult one because you've got also the problems with the, the data and Privacy and this is also something that people have been talking about in the context of of conversational AI, of course. Um, so, yeah, I think actually these are really three really great sort of areas to focus on. Um,
2: I agree completely with what you said, Amanda, and, and I and I think there's a there's a little bit of kind of pessimism in me because how how long have we been talking about this in tech, right now? W- and, and I've not even been doing it as long as most people. So, it's, you know, so there's a, when we're still here talking about, you know, lived experience and development and inclusion, it, there is a little bit of, of you, you get pretty low about the slow pace of change. But I think... If we are talking about an AI strategy for Scotland, if we believe in a progressive Scotland, if we are funding this, then we have the ability to see mistakes that are being made within tech, see things going badly in other places, and we have an opportunity to do something better. And we have to take that opportunity, we have to take that challenge on. So for me, it being trustworthy, ethical and inclusive are the bare minimum of competent technology and competent delivery of AI. So for me, it is the foundation of the strategy. It is the foundation of development. And we can't see it as something that here's the nice stuff to do on the edges. It's the stuff that is in the middle and everything goes from it. So, you know, from ideas generation around AI, how it's funded, development, testing, production, marketing, and the usability and who gets to use it and how all of that pipeline has to have Trustworthiness, ethics, inclusivity, justice, sewn through all of it for it to be fit for purpose at the end point. So, you know, we talk a lot about, you know, um, digital literacy and who has access to data. Who's access. Trustworthiness happens when people have access to technology, sure, but also the knowledge behind how their information is being used, how it's been created. The more you share, the more you share power, the higher the level of trust. So one of the things that I think is critical in Scotland's AI strategy is how do we get people involved in this? The more we get people involved in this, the higher the trust, the better we are at ethics, the more inclusive it is. So it's got to be foundation. It's got to be the the starting point of everything.
0: And, and I wholly agree with you, Talat, there. I mean, that that is what we're trying to do with the strategy. I guess on the flip side, having, you know, had this conversation, I, it, I guess in a way it's a sad state of affairs that we have to highlight that trustworthy, ethical and inclusive right. is what we want to do, because surely that should be a given, right? <laughs> but yeah. unfortunately, it isn't. That's the thing. And that's why we're striving to be that. And yes, you know, our, our mantra is about being open, transparent and collaborative with everything that we do. Um. So, you know, everything that we do, you know, the reports and stuff from all our activities are out there for people to see. And right now, you know, we're we're currently reviewing proposals to do a best practices review for community participatory mechanisms, because we want to ensure that we have an effective mechanism for engaging community in what what we do. and uh, and so. So, yeah, no, absolutely. Totally agree. And and it's really great to hear that as well. And and it's something that, you know, the team behind the AI strategy at the Scottish government, at the data lab, are absolutely on board with that mission. Yeah,
1: yeah I think it's. I, sorry. Sorry, no, no, go on. Okay. Yeah, I I have to completely agree with uh, with Tal. It's. It is sad that that's really not currently how AI is being developed, right? It's always sort of more of, we've got this problem, let's tackle a problem that has nothing to do with ethics, right? The technical challenge, let's say, <laughs> um, and then the ethical and the trustworthiness and all of that always comes at the end, right? It's when we figure out that, oh, actually, people are, are using it, and now we've got this problem that... Mm, Basically, no, nothing about it is is all that ethical in <laughs> the way yeah. we've built it, the way we've collected the data, uh, even sometimes the way it's actually deployed. And um, it's. I think there have been more pushes to try and, and bring this center in front. I know that, you know, as, as a researcher, when I go to conferences now, uh, there are ethical workshops and ethical tracks and conferences, which wasn't the case even five years ago. Um, and it's becoming more and more of a talking point. But at the end of the day, to me, it always still seems that it's sort of uh, a group of researchers that are interested in this uh, and practitioners more broadly. But as a, as a whole, I think that um, AI researchers generally are lacking the even the skills, because I actually read a really horrific um, statistic. I think it's only like ten percent of people who work in AI have had any kind of training on on ethics. Mm, um, that's terrifying. <laughs> yeah, and so you know, when you think about it, you know, it's it's hard for that to be an important part of your sort of pipeline while you work on on a particular problem when you've never really been taught that that's Mm. actually a really key and important part of it. And I think especially in research, we tend to think that, you know, the project is, it's just a research project. It's not going anywhere. And I think you, you hear this all the time, right, about people who just start working on something silly, and then it turns out into, like, a, some, some big thing. Um, and so I think it's it is always an afterthought. And even if we do have more and more work uh, trying to tackle the problem of um, safety in, in AI more broadly, including, yeah, trustworthiness and it being ethical and um, inclusivity. I know there's, like, a few people in my group who work in, in bias, for example, in NLP, Um, I think we need to really be able to tackle that. And I also really like Talit's point about the the problem with digital literacy. It's true that most people don't really know how these systems work. And I think it's important. I think we, the idea as a society that we have of AI is very different from what AI actually is and the AI that we interact with every day. It's not so much the, the killer robots, but the obscure algorithms that push things into our our Instagram or our Facebook feeds that are much more insidious, actually. I think the problems with AI and these sort of scary things are are less obvious than we're expecting them to be
0: yeah no absolutely and you know in all the stakeholder engagement we've taken we we've done so far the, there's still a big issue around demystifying ai and like the fear yeah. of ai so empowering a population with the knowledge to understand it and question it I think is also, you know, part of, part of the mission. Um, but that also kind of leads a bit into the next question about the, the Scottish AI playbook, which is something that the strategy committed to developing. And it's an open and practical guide to how we do AI. Um, you know, I very optimistically like to think that no one sets out to make an unethical, you know, non-inclusive, untrustworthy algorithm or product. I don't know if that's just being naive, <laughs> but I think sometimes the excuse that comes back is that, oh, we didn't even think about that. And, and and so, you know, and so we'd like to think that we could create perhaps some resources that can make sure that people do think about those things. <laughs> and and so if they do proceed anyway, then it's an active decision that you're going to make something mm-hmm. un- not inclusive, unethical, untrustworthy. but. You know, what do you think we should have in the playbook that can help developers and users of AI tackle some of the potential issues we've discussed today?
2: So, from my perspective, I mean, you've got you've got to build in some reflective questions, right? So we we look at it, uh, we as if I'm developing AI. Um, so <laughs> the sector is looking at it, um, as like as just as Amanda said, the technical challenges, right? So if people haven't been given those skills or there isn't the resources or focus on that, we've got to build in the questions that encourage that thinking, encourage that reflection at the different stages that I was talking about. So, you know, something simple as getting used to asking yourself, is this what I'm developing, the idea, the the testing pilot, is this enabling or dismantling systemic inequality? If there is just that question asked, regularly. What role is this playing in enabling or dismantling? And it goes back to to the point that I made before, which is, of course, I'm not saying that it's going to tackle institutionalised racism and sexism, but you have a responsibility in the space you occupy. Is it enabling systemic inequality? Is it dismantling it? Who is involved? What was their role? How can this enable trust in the very thing that we want people to use? So I think reflective questions that ask about what role is this playing in producing a better feeder Scotland or cementing in systemic inequality and injustice? If that can be in it, I think those are questions that all too often are asked by those on the outside looking in rather than those on the inside doing the, the technical work.
1: Yeah I, think that's hear, such a, yeah, yeah, I think that's such a nice, like, succinct way to put it, it's almost like that could be the entire <laughs> um, playbook, but I I, I guess from my background I tend to think about like very specific pointed questions. (laughs) So I was thinking about a, a whole list of sort of checks and balances and I think one of the big ways, right, first of course you need to wonder about the, like ask the question of what is the purpose of the AI model or system that you're building. Uh, And whether that model makes sense. I think that sometimes I see headlines that I, you know, there was a couple of years ago that, for example, that one about the university who built uh, an AI to detect whether men were gay or not based on their dating app uh, pictures. And it, it was such a bizarre, like, I don't know. For me, I felt like, but why? Why would you do that? Like, what is the... Why? Um, And of course, it was very problematic. And, you know, as we know, um, people who are not straight are targeted in in many countries, Luckily, not in in Scotland, but officially anyway. Um, But that's, I think, one of the big steps. But I think also um, other interesting aspects is sometimes you develop an app or an AI system that has a good uh, sort of ethical and beneficial um, purpose, but then the way that you actually deploy it has negative consequences. So another example I can think of was, um, again, I think this is a couple of years ago, there was a cool app where you could report potholes or something in, in the street. And what ended up happening was that only um these potholes ended up only being reported in really rich neighborhoods where people had like the latest version of the iPhone or something and so only the holes in the rich neighborhoods were getting fixed and at the end of the day then you you start off with a good idea but you end up reinforcing uh, for example the socioeconomic um inequality in a way that you did not intend right so Think about your deployment context and the the data. Whether you're using data to train your model in a way that, that that matches the data, the deployment setting where your your model is actually going to be used. These are sort of like it's very specific <laughs> uh, questions. But I also would love to see, of course, more education because I think um, a lot of the problems, like I said, could be not completely solved, but certainly lessened if. People who practice AI for a living, who develop these systems, had that um, that background to ask themselves these questions. Or maybe it's, it would be cool to do something almost like Socratic. I think in in this case, where you are encouraged to ask yourself questions. And I think actually Talit's first question, like, it was just such a great way to put it. Um, it's yeah, she's got really great like. <laughs> phrasing and nice advice <laughs>
0: <laughs> and, and, to play a slight devil's advocate on that question that talad phrased, you know what if the answer is neither it is neither adding to the you know systemic inequality uh you know nor is it dismantling it
2: well see i would i'm i'm pretty hard pressed to find an example that is doing neither fair point <laughs> so so you know amanda made an excellent point there so that that pothole app. It, it was designed, and you would think, "Oh no, this doesn't do either." This, if anything, it might do some good. But if you don't ask yourself the question of who uses it, how do they use it, uh, what impact will this have, who, what, what systemic inequalities like class, like racism, like um, sexism, um, homophobia, any bigotry, how how does it play a role? Because we don't create these systems we don't create these systems away from the reality of society. And I think a lot of the time when we are designing tech, we design it in this bubble of the perfect user journey. Right. But how do you do that without the realities of the influence of society in the real life where it's going to work? So I'd be hard pressed to find a, a, an example that isn't doing one or the other, because actually appearances can be deceptive by like command um, uh, uh, example there. So you've got to ask yourself the hard question and then actually go and. It's not, I mean, it'd be very easy to go either, but the question is meant, should pose a whole other series of questions which require you to then go and do some testing and research to give an honest answer to the question.
1: Yeah, and I was thinking if even if the answer is neither, you might still be inspired, like it might inspire you to want to make it be beneficial to society. I think most people want to leave a positive mark in the world right so that, mm-hmm. i think that's part of why i love that question so much because i think oh if if my answer was it's being like having a negative effect on the world or it's not having an effect i don't want to build i think like, i don't want to do all this work just for nothing mm-hmm. <laughs> no that that's brilliant and uh,
0: and and yeah no <laughs> fantastic chat I, I gotta end with a a final question, um, what do you think our listeners can do going forwards to help, you know, in general, um, open to ideas, whether we can do it at the AI strategy, whether the data lab can do it, the Scottish government, or whether just people as individuals? What What do you think uh, over to talent?
2: Okay, well, I think um, it depends where you are, right? So say, for example, you are... Um, an academic researcher in this space well what is your college or university doing to enable inclusive ethical trustworthy um, AI development and also to what extent is your research publicly available and accessible to more people to enable them to understand what's going on if you are in Scottish government um, I often have a lot of recommendations for for government but there's (laughs) But but what are you doing to enable those who are furthest away from um, power, from wealth, from opportunity to participate in these very important conversations that are often going to impact their jobs, at the very least, their livelihoods, but are so far away from the decision making? There's There's nobody that doesn't play a role, particularly when you're linked to some kind of institution, whether it is um, multinational organisation, uh, tech developer, um, academic research, government, local authority, um, whatever it might be, there is a role that you're playing within a system that you occupy, where there will be those who are excluded from participating in that space. So what what are you going to do to tackle that? How are you going to open the doors so that there is a accountability happening, and b genuine participation of lived experience? Thank you very much. (laughs) No, that's that's brilliant.
0: (laughs) And Amanda?
1: Yeah, I think my suggestions are sort of more broad for anybody who uses technology, which is today pretty much all of us. Um, And that would be to, one, educate yourself uh, as much as you can. I think, you know, nowadays there's like a lot of podcasts and great blogs uh, dealing with AI ethics and AI for lay people, so you don't need to learn how to program your own deep learning algorithm, but um understand how it works and what what is the AI that you're de- really dealing with um so don't try not to buy into the AI overhype uh, or the the killer robots um and also to actually try and stay engaged in this I think. If we all reported, for example, more of the problems that we see, then we encourage companies to find the the problems that exist, hopefully before they are actually released to the public. Um, but certainly, I mean, even if there's public outrage, I think that's certainly good motivation for companies to try and tackle these these issues. I think uh, because we all fall to it. I think even people who um, want more ethical AI, who are in AI ethics, can make mistakes and and miss things. So if everybody, you know, at the end of the day, there's only a small portion of people who are working in AI. If everybody works towards reporting problems with this AI, then we can slowly chip away at, at finding these problems. No, if I say problems one more time. <laughs> <laughs> no, that,
2: that, that,
0: that, is, that is brilliant. Obviously, the collective responsibility is there, not just with technology, you know, with with the wider issues, you know, or societal issues. There's a collective responsibility, yeah. I think. Um, but no, thank you so much. This comes come to the end of our time. Thank you so much for your time, Talat and Amanda. It was, it was great to chat with you guys. I, I would have continued this for much longer. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, no, thank you so much for joining us today.